This morning we begin a brand new series called Walk Through the Bible, Introduction to the Holy Scriptures, Book by Book. And this is a series that I've wanted to preach for a long time. And I've been uh, eagerly anticipating this series. And one of the reasons why is... I th- this was my experience as a young Christian, and I think it's probably true of all of us, uh, maybe some of us when we were young, or maybe some of you now. When you, when you look at the Bible, uh, it's a lot of pages. There, there's a lot of words. And it, I mean, I think if you're honest, it can be pretty daunting and overwhelming to, uh, to, to look at and think about what's the big idea of the Bible? What's the main message? What, and then and maybe even more specifically, we might have an instinct like, well, it's about the gospel, for example. But it'll be like, well, what, what's each book about? What's, what's the book of Obadiah about? You know, can anyone tell me what the main idea of Obadiah is here? You know, probably not. So it's, it's one of those things that when we think about every book of the Bible, it can be overwhelming. So one of the most helpful things that I was ever encouraged to do in, in college and seminary was to create an outline of each book of the Bible. And it was actually part of my ordination for, uh, in the PCA as well. To, uh, one of the study preps for ordination was, can you, uh, with one word or a short phrase, describe the big idea of each book of the Bible in kind of a general outline of each book? And it's, it's a wonderful exercise, and, I, and it shouldn't just be pastors or elders who do that. I'd really encourage each of you, as you're studying the Bible, to, to work, okay, what's the outline? What's the big idea? What are the themes? Where is Christ in this book? Uh, and it will really help and mold your own theology, and it will help build a strong theological framework and foundation for your life as a Christian. And so I hope that this series will be a help towards that end. Uh, If you turn with me to the inside back cover, what I'm going to want to do, what I'm going to do each week is give an overview of the book that we're in with uh, what we call a melodic line, which is the big idea. You could also just call it the big idea uh, of the book. And then I'll also give a brief outline to kind of help make these big, Book. Well, any book, but especially these big books, a little more, more coherent. Okay, what's going on uh, in each of the book? So I will be directing you to that page regularly throughout this series. Uh, but I hope that all of this will help you build a knowledge of the Word of God and grow in your literacy of what's going on. So the pathway in this series is we're going to d- preach one sermon on each book of the Bible. One sermon on each book of the Bible. And one of you said this morning, like, I'm really eager to see how you're going to preach 50 chapters in one 45-minute message. But obviously, uh, I'm not going to be able to take you through the entire book in in a minute detail. But what I aim to do is give you the big idea, the main point of the book. And so that you can go away, just kind of understand, okay, what is Genesis all about, kind of in a sentence or in a nutshell? What's Exodus about? What's Leviticus about? And how do we see Christ in all of that? So one sermon on each book of the Bible. So now we begin with Genesis. Genesis. 
I'm going to argue today, uh, and you can see it in my title, that Genesis is all about the gospel. So the subtitle of this message is, In the Beginning Was the Gospel. Genesis is all about the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is, of course, concealed. Uh, Paul talks about the mystery of how God would fulfill his promises that he made in the law and the prophets. And of course, Paul says that the mystery is revealed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So now from the vantage of the New Testament, we can look back on the Old Testament with greater clarity to see how even in the very beginning, the gospel of Jesus Christ was promised. And when we start seeing with those eyes, the Old Testament comes alive in a fresh and new way. Genesis is all about the gospel. Now at the same time, while we should be glorying and delighting in the gospel, Genesis is also one of the most debated books uh, among Christians or among uh, non-believers as well, specifically dealing with the intersection of faith with science and history. And so I think this is a common tactic of the enemy, always trying to give us away from the glory of God and the gospel. Um, So much of the discussion about Genesis, as well as the other historical books in the Old Testament, is things like, did it really happen? Did it happen in this way? Does science disprove the Bible? And so forth. So we're going to need to deal with that today as well, particularly in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. But my goal to this morning is that you will, with greater measure and with greater clarity, be able to behold the glory and grace of God as our creator and as our redeemer. So that's the big goal this morning. Now, if you would look at the inside cover of your, uh, the inside back cover of the worship folder there, where we have the overview of Genesis, I want to draw your attention to a few things by way of a pathway this morning. First, the melodic line. This is, again, every book is like a symphony. And as you know, a symphony has kind of a main theme, but then it has all sorts of other themes, sometimes that go with the theme, sometimes that are in contrast to the the theme, like a discord. Uh, And as we want to study the Word of God in each book, we want to know, okay, what is the theme? And that helps us see with kind of greater... uh, uh, Detail. Hopefully, maybe uh, we see with greater measure the eloquence of the, the literary craft that the Holy Spirit inspired in these books as well, and we can learn more lessons. So the melodic line, the symphonic line, maybe we could call it here, is that the book of Genesis records the story of creation, the spread of the curse, and the gospel promise of redemption through God's covenant with Abraham Isaac, and Jacob. So in this, we really see three things, and that's what we're going to look at this morning. The story of creation, the spread of the curse, and the gospel promise of redemption through God's covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So we will look at those three things this morning. But before we get there, let's look briefly at the structure of the book. When we're talking about A big idea of any book, whether it's the inspired word of God 
or any book you pick up in the airport or in the library, every book has a structure, like a skeleton. And it's the skeleton that gives structure and like order to the whole. Like, so uh, there's a, a, a scholar and pastor named David Helm who uh, leads a ministry that we, we use a lot called the Charles Simeon Trust, and they do work on equipping pastors and lay people to exposit the Word of God. And he, and he shares this illustration about, without bones, we're just a bag of a pile of flesh on the floor. You know, and there's no meaning and there's no function and there's no power without having a structure, a skeleton to hold us up. And so when we want to study the, the big idea of a book, we need to know it's like skeleton structure. And that's where knowing the outline of a book helps us. Because when we see the outline of a book, that helps us see, okay, what is the author emphasizing? Is there an, a logical order to what's going on? And does that reveal the big idea of the book? And what we see with Genesis is the big idea has everything to do with biological spreading. Biological spreading of something. And we'll see both of sin and of grace. Both of sin and grace. As well as that grace coming through a particular offspring that is rooted all the way back in the beginning of the creation story and that offspring being Jesus Christ. So the book of Genesis here, if you look in the overview, is structured around a word called toledotes. That's a Hebrew word, toledotes. It's translated in the ESV as these are the generations of. Um, so th- there's 10 toledotes in Genesis from verse 2-4 to the end of the book. And before that, we have the creation of the heavens and the earth. So there's really two big parts, a a prologue or introduction. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then the rest of the book deals with 10 Toledotes. These are the generations of, or you could translate, this is the story of. It's like what happened to this person. So the first Toledote is the heavens and the earth. And then you can look there, B, with Adam. What became of Adam? What became of Noah? What became of Shem, Ham, and Japheth? What became of Shem? What became of Terah? Which is all about Abraham's story. What became of Ishmael? What became of Isaac? What became of Esau? And what became of Jacob? All right. And if you, any of you want a more detailed outline than what I had space to include here, I'm happy to furnish you with that as well. You can just uh, contact me uh, afterwards. But this is the big idea. It's about this story of creation, the spread of the curse, and the gospel promise of redemption through God's covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. If you have a pen, I would encourage you to circle <clears throat> the story of Terah, which is F, yep, the story of Isaac, and the story of Jacob. Those are really the big three major sections of the patriarchs. And what you will notice is it's a little counterintuitive in first, but the story of Terah is the story of Abraham. So it's, it's, all, it's, not, it's actually that this is what became of the father, but the story is all about the son. Okay, so Terah's, this is what became of Terah. It's all about Abraham. In Isaac's section, it's actually all about Jacob. And in Jacob's section, J, it's all about Joseph. 
So we see the importance of biology and offspring coming again and again in this section and in this book. Okay, with that said then, let's get into Genesis. Let's look first, well again I said we'll look at this in three parts this morning. First, we'll look at the story of creation. The story of creation in Genesis 1 and 2. And as I mentioned already, when we read Genesis 1 and 2 as modern Western thinkers, we immediately are confronted with problems. The faith that we confess and our knowledge of science, no matter how sure or vague we are of that knowledge, we begin to wrestle with the intersection of faith and science. And one of the problems immediately that uh, we deal with as Christians and I've experienced in my life and with others is that we, we have two problems going for us. Number one, we don't have a perfect knowledge of how to interpret the Bible and especially very interesting and unique sections like the creation narrative. And then secondly, we certainly do not have a perfect understanding of the empirical facts that science is discovering. And there are theories, but we don't have perfect knowledge. So there are theories about how to interpret Genesis 1 and 2 and so forth. Even among, many theories, even among Christians who believe that the Word of God is inspired and infallible without error. And there's also, as we know, many theories about how to interpret the facts that geology and other sciences are discovering. And so we have to wrestle with that. And I'm going to let that tension linger for a moment as I share with you the common uh, theories or interpretations that God-fearing Christians who believe in an infallible inspired Bible have, uh, have debated about. So there's, there's five views, five main views among evangelicals regarding the creation account. And I want to just in brief lay those out for you this morning. The first view is a young earth, literal six 24-hour day view. So a literal, so reading Genesis 1 at face value that God created the earth in six days, rested on the seventh. These are six literal 24-hour days. So that is one reading, and that's a fairly dominant reading in Christian history, but not the only one. The second theory among God-fearing Christians who believe in an inerrant Bible is called the gap theory. The gap theory. And the gap theory teaches that verses 1 and 2 of Genesis 1 deal with God's first creation, and it's the creation that was corrupted when uh, Lucifer fell from being a glorious angel to the archdemon and the archenemy of God. We know that is true from greater biblical revelation. But people who affirm the gap theory believe that verses 1 and 2 deal with God's first creation, which eventually gets wiped out and judged and becomes void and darkness covers the earth. And then, then the six days... And the seventh day are God's second creation. So that's, that's another theory uh, 
So like in that view, they would believe that dinosaurs and things like that happened in the first creation, which was wiped out. So that's called the gap theory. Obviously, I'm not going to be able to fully treat these theories this morning, but I want to give you just a framework for your own study. A third theory among God-fearing, Bible-believing evangelicals is called the day-age theory, day-age theory. And this theory teaches that uh, God sometimes uses the word day to mean a long period of time. So there's evidence in the Bible that the word day that's used in Genesis 1 can also be used in the Bible to talk about an age or a period of time. And so in the day-age theory, they argue that each day of the creation week is actually a long period, an indefinitely long period of time as God, over the course of a a long period of time, created the earth. Uh, A fourth view among God-fearing, Bible-believing evangelicals is theistic evolution, that God used evolution to bring about uh, the creation. Um, So it's not the Darwinistic view of evolution where it's just, just blind chance. God is orchestrating that creation and evolution. And they like to use, for example, an illustration of the, the, the egg and, and the sperm in the womb that eventually grows to become a child. So whether I'm not arguing for any one of these positions this morning, but that's another view among evangelical, God-fearing, Bible-believing Christians. A fifth view, a fifth and final view, is called the literary framework view the literary framework view, or you could just call the framework view for short. But this view teaches that Genesis 1 is poetry. It's a poetic way of describing what our brains could not fathom, that is how God created all things of nothing, created time itself. We can't think outside of time. And so God, in a poetic way, gave us the creation week to, uh, to help us understand and remember what God taught. And so um, just to kind of give an example of this view, in day, they, they separate days one to three with days four to six. And they say that days one to three deals with days of forming, where God creates the forms. And then days four to six, God fills the forms. So we do see a pattern when we look at these days. In day one, God creates, he separates light and darkness. In day four, God fills light and darkness with the sun, moon, and stars. Okay, so they see a parallel there. Uh, In day two, God separates the sky and the waters. So the waters above and the waters below creates an expanse. In day five, he fills the expanse with the fish and the birds. So the waters... Are filled, and in the ancient world, the sky is water as, as well, or the sky is holding up the water. So there's a filling, and then in day three, God creates the form dry land and seas separated. Um, uh, the dry and land, uh, sorry, the dry land and the seas are separated, and the plants and trees fill the earth. Uh, and on day six, God creates animals and man as as the the pinnacle of creation. And so they use this frame 
framework view. And the people who hold this framework view argue, uh, and I'll quote one theologian who said that, um, well, this is coming through Louis Burkhoff about a, a theologian who holds the framework view. Uh, but he says, but uh, this gentleman introduces it simply as part of a framework for the narrative of creation, not to indicate historical sequence, but to picture the glory of the creatures in the light of the great redemptive purposes of God. Hence, the Sabbath is the great culminating point in which, in which man reaches his real destiny. So those who argue this view also teach that God gives us a week and shows that the seventh day is the, day, is the culminating point of creation where man is designed to rest and to worship and behold the glory of God. So they view it in a poetic kind of way. So these are, these are five ways of viewing uh, the creation account. You might ask, well, historically, what did Christians believe? I kind of gave you five current views. Uh, historically, there has been great debate about creation as well. Um, many theologians all the way back to the beginning believe God created everything in an instant. Uh, and Augustine, for example, uh, holds this view. He, he argued for two moments of creation, the moment when God uh, created everything and then the moment when he organized everything. And um, Louis Burkhoff cites Augustine here saying that uh, Augustine found it difficult. Well, let me read the whole quote. Augustine dealt with the work of creation more in detail than others did. He argues that creation was eternally in the will of God and therefore brought no change in him. There was no time before creation since the world was brought into being with time rather than in time. The question what God did in the many ages before creation is based on a misconception of eternity. While the church in general still seems to have held that the world was created in six ordinary days, Augustine suggested a somewhat different view. He strongly defended the doctrine of creation ex nihilo, that means creation out of nothing, but distinguished two moments of creation, the production of matter and spirits out of nothing, and the organization of the material universe. He found it difficult to say what kind of days uh, the days of Genesis were, but was evidently inclined to think that God created all things in a moment of time, and that the thought of days was simply introduced to aid the finite intelligence. So I've laid out a lot of views today, but I want to give some concluding thoughts on them. How should we today in this room think about them? Think about Genesis 1 and 2, the creation account, and the, that intersection with science or historiography. I want to give just a, a, few, a few remarks here. First, how about our own Westminster theology as, uh, as Reformed and Presbyterian people? The Westminster standards are actually one of the only confessional documents that meant, actually I might say, to my knowledge, are the only confessional documents that talk about the six days at all. So talking about what, are the work, what is the work of creation in the Shorter Catechism, for example, the answer is, God made all things of nothing by the word of his power in the space of six days and all very good. So what do we mean by confessing that when it's the only, the only confession that I know of? When we say the Apostles' Creed, we confess the Father is the maker of heaven and earth. 
and in the Nicene Creed, the maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. All of the con- historical confessions don't say anything about the six days specifically, but we have this line in the Westminster Standards. And there's been some debate about what the uh, Westminster theologians believed about this. But I find a, a scholar named Robert Lethem convincing when he says, aware of the range of different interpretations in the history of the, the church, the Westminster Assembly would not be committing itself to any one particular view. Evidently, it was not seen as an important matter. The assembly was well aware of the history of interpretation, as it was on other topics. It knew it was diverging from a major position in the history of exegesis associated with Augustine in particular. And he's saying that because most of the the Westminster theologians held a six-day, 24-hour view. That's what he's arguing. But then Lethem says, yet it did not make, they did not make an issue of it, nor commit itself, that is in the standards, to a particular interpretation of the text of Genesis. In other words, what they're arguing is that when we confess the Lord made six day, made the creation in six days and all very good, they're simply using the biblical language without making an interpretation of what, of what that means. Okay, so... The question then beyond Westminster theology is what is the orthodox view? Because there are, there are some Christians that would say only this view is orthodox. And if, you, and if you don't believe this view, you're not really a Christian or you're rejecting the Bible. And false kinds of, basically what they're doing is they're taking one interpretation of Genesis and saying this is the God-inspired interpretation. And if you don't believe this one, then you are not a Christian. That also means that if you don't, if you don't, uh, let's say you reject that narrow interpretation, then you're going to argue, well, the science contradicts the Bible and shows the Bible is wrong. So it's really important that we have a wise understanding of this. So what is the line of orthodoxy uh, when we think about the views of creation? Hermann Bavink, who was a Dutch Reform theologian in the 19th century, Uh, a very well-respected theologian broadly in in the Reformed world, says, It is remarkable that not a single confession made a fixed pronouncement about the six-day continuum. And he would be well aware of the Westminster standards, and I'm sure he takes Lethem's kind of approach to understanding how they use that language. So Bavink says, It is remarkable that not a single confession made a fixed pronouncement about the six-day continuum, and that in theology as well, a variety of interpretations were allowed to exist side by side. He goes on, Augustine already urged believers not too quickly to consider a theory to be in conflict with Scripture. To enter the discussion on these difficult subjects only after serious study, and not to make themselves ridiculous by their ignorance in the eyes of unbelieving science. And this goes all the way back to Augustine. Well, I mean, we're talking 4th, 5th centuries here. Um, this warning has not always been faithfully taken to heart by theologians. Geology, it must be said, may render excellent service to us in the interpretation of the creation story, just as the Copernican worldview 
has pressed theology to give another and better interpretation of the sun standing still in Joshua 10. As, a, as Assyriology and Egyptology form precious sources of information for the interpretation of Scripture. And as history frequently finally enables us to understand a prophecy and its true significance, so also geological and, paleontolo- and paleontological investigations help us in this century to gain a better understanding of the creation story. We must remember that the creation and preparation of heaven and earth is a divine work par excellence. A miracle in the absolute sense of the word, full of mysteries and secrets. Genesis, nevertheless, tells the story of this work in such a simple and sober manner that there almost seems to be a contradiction between the fact itself and its description. Behind every feature in the creation story lies a world of marvels and mighty deeds of God. I love that. Which geology has displayed before our eyes in a virtually endless series of phenomena. Accordingly, scripture and theology, and this is important, my friends, accordingly, scripture and theology have nothing to fear from the facts brought to light by geology and paleontology. The world, too, is a book whose pages have been inscribed by God's almighty hand. Talking about the book of creation, of works, or of science, that, too, is inscribed by God's almighty hand. Conflict arises only because both the text of the book of Scripture and the text of the book of nature are so often or often so badly read and poorly understood. In this connection, the theologians are not without blame, since they have frequently condemned science, not in the name of Scripture, but in the name of their own incorrect views. And natural scientists, now he turns the other way, have repeatedly interpreted the facts and phenomena they discovered in a manner and in, a, in support of a worldview that was neither justified by Scripture nor by science. So he's arguing that on both sides are, are fallible interpretations of Scripture and fallible interpretations of the facts of science lead to false dichotomies where we have to either choose faith or science. And what Bavink is saying is that God is the perfect and almighty author of both the book of Scripture and the book of natural history. And that in the final analysis, when God reveals all the facts, we will see that Scripture and his works that science can discover align perfectly. Wayne Grudem cites Francis Schaeffer on this faith and science dilemma when he says Schaeffer's major point is that in both our understanding of the natural world and our understanding of Scripture, our knowledge is not perfect. But we can approach both scientific and biblical study with the confidence that when all the facts are correctly understood and when we have understood Scripture rightly, our findings will never be in conflict with each other. There will be no final conflict. This is because God, who speaks in Scripture, knows all the facts, and he has not spoken in a way that would contradict any true fact in the universe. And uh, a well-respected Presbyterian uh, 
A.A. Hodge says, The facts which are certain are one. The record in Genesis has been given by divine revelation and therefore is infallibly true. The book of Revelation and the book of nature, this is number two, the book of Revelation and the book of nature are both from God and will be found when both are adequately interpreted to coincide perfectly. You can see the themes of these guys. Number three, the fact upon which the science of geology is based are yet very imperfectly collected and much more imperfectly understood. The time has not come yet in which a profitable comparison and adjustment of the two records can be attempted. And number four, the record in Genesis, brief and general as it is, was designed and is admirably adapted to lay the foundation of an intelligent faith in Jehovah as the absolute creator and the immediate former and providential ruler of all things. But it was not designed either to prevent or to take the place of scientific interpretation of all existing phenomena and of all traces of the past history of the world, which God allows men to discover. Apparent discrepancies and established truths can have their ground only in, again, imperfect knowledge. God requires us both to believe and to learn. He imposes upon us at present the necessity of humility and patience. I want to conclude this first part on the story of creation just by reminding us of what the focus is, regardless of our interpretation of Genesis 1 and 2, regardless of how God chose to create, and regardless of of all that Genesis 1 and 2 teach and does not teach, it is clear that Genesis 1 is this beautiful almost, you call it priestly or liturgical week, which we still have today. We work six days and we rest and worship on the, on the seventh day. Well, since the Lord's redemption, we worship on the first day of the week. But you have the six and the one. And we see this beautiful teaching on the seventh day that becomes the foundation for Israel's rest and for our rest on the Lord's day, that that is a day to glorify God and to enjoy Him by resting in our works. And that is God's design. And all of the debates about science and interpretation often get away in that fact that Genesis 1, the very opening words and passage of the Bible, teach us that we are created by God to worship and glorify Him. And that is the climax of human existence. That is the climax of all our endeavors should be to worship and glorify God. And we're reminded of that every Lord's Day as we gather together. So I want to wholeheartedly encourage you to pursue these various interpretations and to pursue science and see God's glorious hand in it and to not create false dichotomies and divisions between faith and science because God is the author of all of it, but what he gives to us in his holy word is what is most important, how to interpret all facts to know that we are created to worship and glorify him as our creator and our redeemer. Let's move now to the second major theme in Genesis, which is the spread of sin. 
the spread of sin. And we see this in chapters 3 all the way to 50. Chapters 3 to 50. And I encourage you to have your Bible. Uh, We're going to just turn to a few texts briefly in Genesis this morning dealing with the spread of sin. Please turn to Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 to 17. No, chapter 2. Chapter 2, verses 15 to 17. Here we see man's original vocation. It's like God's contract. It's like Adam and Eve's, well, it's just Adam at this point. Eve comes later in this passage. But it's Adam's employment contract. <laughs> it's what, what, what's his job? What's his, what's his duty? Uh, in more biblical language, we can talk about a covenant. This is God's covenant that he has made with Adam. And we read in in chapter 2, verses 15 to 17, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And right here we have what's... we referred to in theological terms, the covenant of life or the covenant of works. Uh, You'll see theologians use that kind of language here. A couple things I want to point out. The word for work uh, is the same word as worship. And let me be a little more specific there. When we read the Hebrew text, the original language, Hebrew does not come with vowels. It only comes with consonants. So uh, it can uh, make interpretation sometimes difficult. In the, Middle a- in the Middle Ages, Jewish scribes started putting in vowels to preserve the Hebrew language. And so we have some aids there as the texts come down to us. But the word for, uh, the, the consonants for worship and work are the same. And they're only separated by some slight vowel changes. But we see again, as we saw in Creation Week, this emphasis on worship and rest. It also comes in this original covenant with Adam to work. Work is worship. To, and then uh, I should say work according to God's design is worship. And of course, the great sin is when Adam and Eve violate and break their contract. They break the covenant. They break the reason that they were created for. So we come then to the fall in chapter 3 and just turn over. And I would encourage you to study these passages this week. But we see then in Genesis 3, the curse comes and the serpent is cursed and Adam and Eve are cursed. And what, what's the result of their fall when they do eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Thorns and thistles. Thorns and and thistles, or or we can use the Westminster language, sin and misery. Our lives are pretty well described as sin and misery since the fall. Childbearing, everything to do with childbearing is now made extraordinarily difficult. And everything that has to do with work and cultivating the ground, now you've got thistles and briars and weeds to deal with. 
thorns and thistles, sin and misery. And as we move forward, we see Noah's, or excuse me, Adam's genealogy in chapter 5. There's only one person that gets out alive, and that's Enoch. And that's, that's a whole other mystery of, of Enoch's story. He walked with God, and then he was not. Every other person in Adam's genealogy, it ends, and they died, and they died, and they died, and they died, and they died. It would be a good exercise to count how many times in chapter 5, and they died. The curse, death spread to all men. We could talk about Cain and Abel in the first murder. We, I mean, there's so many places as you read Genesis, you see this theme of the spread of sin. Uh, turn over to chapter 6, verse 5. Just incru- in, uh, in, sorry. There's increasing corruption on earth. And in chapter 6, verse 5, we read, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now that's quite a condemnation and statement about all of mankind. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So the Lord brings the flood. He preserves Noah and his family. What happens right after the flood? There's a grave sin we don't exactly know what the sin was, but it, we are told that Ham saw his father's nakedness. And there's debates about what that means. And that curse spreads to Ham and to Canaan, his son Canaan specifically. Um, and we see that life is no better after the flood. God judged the earth, but sin was still reigning. It's not like there's this righteousness now reigns through Noah. And sin spreads. And then we get to patriarchal history. And you'll see that each one of these families is extraordinarily dysfunctional. Extraordinarily dysfunctional. So while God is choosing and and saving and uh, making gospel promises, they continue to be extraordinarily dysfunctional. And I think we can see that in our own lives and families and churches too. There's sadly incredible dysfunction at times, even as grace is spreading. So one of the things I love about Genesis in terms of a holy book, and I I will compare scripture to the Quran in this instance. When you read the Quran, the figures in the Quran are always held up as perfect and noble and and holy. Muhammad's described that way, um, especially. But when you read the Bible, Everybody is displayed. Even the heroes of the Bible are revealed as really dysfunctional and broken people. And that, to me, is one of the things that testifies to the reality and the truthfulness of Scripture, is that it's, it's very real about people. And we can identify with that as well. But the spread of sin, the curse is spreading. And that Genesis shows us as well as the rest of Scripture, that there will be no hope without divine intervention. There will be no hope without divine intervention. And so that takes us to the third and final point that we see in Genesis, or theme number three, the gospel promise of redemption. 
the gospel promise of redemption. Remember I said and I've titled this sermon, Genesis in the beginning was the gospel. So that's what I want to end on this morning. And I'll have you just write down, um, I would again encourage you to write down some key texts, but if you have Genesis open, let's go back to Genesis 3, verse 15. And I really want you to see this for yourself. And this is what I mean by in the beginning was the gospel. In, in the midst of the curse that the Lord brought upon the serpent and on Adam and Eve, here in verse 15, we have what theologians have called the Proto-Evangelion, or the first gospel. The first gospel. Right here in Genesis 3.15, the Lord, is, while he's cursing the serpent, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Some translations say he shall crush your head and uh, you shall crush his heel. But right here we have the first hope of redemption, the first gospel as the theologians have historically called it. Moving beyond chapter 3, even in the midst of the fall, we go to chapter 9. Turn to chapter 9. In verses 26 and 27, we see this uh, promise, this blessing given to Noah and his sons. In verse 26, he says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. As we follow this biological trail in Genesis, it's narrowing down to Shem. So the promise began, began with the seed of Eve and is traveling down through Noah and then to Noah's sons and down to Shem. So when we talk about Semitic peoples, this is the Shemites. Okay, so the, the Jewish origins here with Shem, Semitic peoples. The, we have this promise in Genesis that this, this, this blessing is going to come through Shem and that the other sons will find shelter uh, in them and Japheth specifically being mentioned here. Well, we move on then to chapter 11, if you just turn over to verse 27, to Terah's descendants. He's of the line of Shem. And I won't read this passage for the sake of time, but this from Terah's line, who comes from Shem, narrows down to Abraham, or as he's first called, Abram. And in Genesis 12, we have one of the most important promises in the whole Bible, in a biblical revelation, in verses 1 to 3, when the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Later on in chapter 15, and you can read this on your own, God makes a formal covenant with Abraham. He cuts, uh, they cut an animal in half the long way. So if you can imagine like a cow here, they, they cut him in half the long way. The pieces fell to the side 
and in an ancient Near Eastern covenant, the two kings or people that were making a covenant would say, may this happen to me if I don't uphold my end of the covenant. And that's so, you know, we're reading an old book and these are old customs. And so may this destruction happen to me if I don't fulfill the covenant. Well, in Genesis 15, the Lord is the only one that passes through the pieces. He puts Abraham to sleep. And this torch passes through. It's the Lord passing through the, the, the pieces. And the Lord is promising uh, people and a land. People and a land. And he says, I will make your descendants as numerous. or They will be innumerable. If you can count the stars in heaven, you can count the number of your descendants. And then in Genesis 17, God creates another covenant. These are all one covenant, but different aspects of it. The covenant of circumcision, where the sign of the covenant is circumcision, whereas now the sign of the covenant is baptism today. But we have this this sign that will bear evidence throughout the generations to remind them of God's promise. This promise gets passed on uh, to Jacob, who will later be named Israel in chapter 28. And we see in Genesis this flowing theme of the spread of grace, the spread of the gospel promises from Abraham to Isaac and Jacob, so that when Jesus comes on the scene, it's well known when they talk about God, they talk about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, their patriarchs. The New Testament shows some really wonderful things about these early covenant promises to Abraham and his descendants. And we will conclude with this after I give a few other final notes. But in Luke 1, when Mary finds out that she's with child and that the Christ will be born in her womb, She exclaims in Luke 1, verses 54 and 55, God has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. Mary's making the connection between Jesus' global kingdom mission and the promise made to Abraham. Later in Luke 1, in verses 68 to 73, Zechariah proclaims, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his covenant, the oath that he swore to our father, Abraham. The most clear and emphatic connection in the New Testament, speaking of the gospel being preached in in Genesis and to Abraham, is what we read in our scripture reading today, Galatians 3. Galatians 3, where Paul says a number of things. We just read one of them. In Galatians 3, 7 to 9, he talks about the gospel being preached beforehand to Abraham saying in you, and he's quoting Genesis 12, in you shall all the nations be blessed. He goes on in verse 16 
to say that now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. This idea of offspring continues. A biological seed. It does not say into offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, into your offspring who is Christ. And so Paul's arguing that the offspring that would inherit the promises given to Abraham was Christ. And that our inheritance of those promises comes through our faith in Jesus Christ. And so Paul concludes his argument in Galatians 3 by saying, But now faith has come. We are no longer under a guardian. That is the Mosaic law. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So our inheritance and our engagement, our right to read the Old Testament and embrace these truths is through our faith in Christ. And that's the mystery revealed as we see Christ in Genesis. And how about these broader promises about the curse and about rest and Sabbath? Hebrews 4.3, the writer argues that for we who have believed have entered that rest. He's talking about the eternal Sabbath rest. That original creation design, we inherit through faith in Christ. How about dealing with the curse? 2 Corinthians fifteen seventeen. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Even as we continue to wrestle with sin in our flesh, when God looks at us, he sees a new creation. We're returning to the original order of things. And how about the final day when we truly will? Revelation 21, 1 to 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. The thorns and thistles will be gone. For the former things have passed away, and he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Genesis lays the themes of God as creator, of the spread of sin, and God as our redeemer through the gospel promise, through Abraham's covenant. It lays the themes, these three major themes, creation, fall, redemption, that we will wrestle and deal with and learn about for the rest of Holy Scripture and of which will be answered and culminated and fixed and made perfect and even more glorious on the day of our Lord's return. So that's Genesis. In the beginning was the gospel. Just before we pray, I just want to answer, how can you get the most out of this series in the days 
going forward. I have uh, just three encouragements for you. One, I would encourage you, you know, so you're going to know where we're going next week. You just follow the, the order of the canon. So we'll be in Exodus next week. I would really encourage you to challenge yourself to read the whole book before the sermon. So during the week, read the whole book. And if, if some of that is hard or difficult for you, uh, a great help is to have the audio, an audio book playing, uh, an audio recording of the Bible while you read the same translation. So there's some really great audio versions of the English Standard Version, which is the translation that we use. So you can read the text and listen along uh, and or just listen if that's all you can do. But in some way, I would really encourage you to just help yourself get a grasp of, of the book. And you start off with some really big books and it gets a little easier as you, as you go along. There are a few exceptions like Isaiah along the way. But I would challenge you to do that, and it will really help you be more informed when we, when we give you the overview of the book. Second, I would encourage you to study. So use the, the folder guide, the worship folder guide that I've given to you, or a good study Bible like the ESV study Bible or Reformation study Bible or the NIV study Bible. Those are some great English study Bibles that I highly recommend. Study for yourself and, and learn. And that you'll get a lot more out of this series if you do that. And thirdly, commune with God in it. Commune with God. It's like when you think about the book of nature, you turn over any stone and there's wonders. There's a fossil. There's, there's some little creature. You turn over the stones of scripture and there's wonder upon wonder. So commune with God, make this an exercise of worship, and communicate and commune with each other. Talk about what you're discovering and learning with one another about the glories of God and what you're discovering. And in all of it, pray that God would give us wisdom and insight. And on that note, let's give thanks for the book of Genesis.